Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. All right. Uh, China's central bank has uh, ordered online payment groups to operate through a centralized clearinghouse. Now, this could undercut the dominance of companies like Ant Financial and Tencent because they then have to share that data with competitors. Let's talk about China and its effects on uh, trade and uh, political events in Asia with uh, William Rar Rhodes. Bill Rhodes is the author of Banker to the World, Leadership Lessons from the Front Lines of Global Finance, and he is the president and chief executive of William R. Rhodes Global Advisors. Bill Bill Rhodes, uh, you know, looking at the subtitle of the book, Leadership Lessons from the Front Lines of Global Finance, those leadership lessons, and having read the book, can be applied not just to the world of finance, but to the world of politics. And they seem to intersect very clearly right now when it comes to Asia and the Korean Peninsula. Based on what you know from the leaders of China what and South Korea, for example, what, do you, what kind of conversations do you believe that they are currently having? Well, I think the most important thing right now for Xi Jinping, the president of China, is the 19th Party Congress, which happens every five years, uh, which will occur sometime at the end of October, maybe the beginning of of November, but I think October, because that's when he gets a chance to make sure he gets all his people on the seven-member standing committee of the Politburo of the Communist Party, because they are the ones who are going to take the decisions for where China goes for the next five years. And he is, uh, without a doubt, the strongest leader China's had probably since Deng Xiaoping, and uh, many people think he's got elements of both Mao Zedong and Deng Xiaoping uh, with him. And so he's obviously not very happy with what's going on in Korea because this disturbs sort of the uh, the peace and the pace of what's going on in, uh, for the party Congress. He also has a problem with, uh, with, with his financial system in the sense of you have a very high uh, rate there of uh, <clears throat> debt to GDP, which is 280% uh, and growing uh, up from 150% uh, at the time of the Great Recession. Also, you have shadow banking levels uh, at uh, almost 87, 88% of total GDP, $9 trillion. And now the asset management uh, situation is now becoming a problem. And that's uh, almost $9 trillion. So what he needs to do is to clean up the financial system, but he really can't get into that too hard until the party congress. And you're already seeing what's going on with Ambang, Fusan, Dalian Wanda, uh, the Highland Island Group, and all of those, because he's, uh, the regulators, under his instructions, are starting to say uh, you know, to the financial sector, look, you've you got to be more prudent in your lending. But I see a major crackdown coming. So all of what's going on in Korea is a very bad distraction for his plans to get through the party congress. You mentioned prudent lending, and I'm wondering if it is also a pullback from foreign investments. They want more of the money to go to projects in China, not based on asset purchases outside uh, the country. That is why the four companies I mentioned they're leaning on, because in all of those cases, uh, these companies have, have been doing massive uh, uh, purchases uh, outside of China, like 
the Waldorf Astoria. I could run through all of these. And what that did was it dropped the reserves of China from $4 trillion to where they are today, about $3 trillion, and they had to put on capital controls. So all of this is leading up to the 19th Party Congress, which to me, other than a black swan event, which could, you know, could always happen in, 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 uh, with North Korea, with Kim Jong-un, this is the most important event that's going to take place in the world, and not many people are focused on it. Now, when you get to Korea, I know President Moon, the new president of, uh, of South Korea. I dealt with him on the free trade agreement when I was leading the private sector for those negotiations because he was chief of staff to, to President No at the time. He is very much to the left. He has been a great one on reconciling with North Korea, and he's been caught in a difficult situation because North Korea doesn't want to reconcile. And so he's been fighting the uh, the establishment and usage of the THAAD missile, but I think he's going to have to back off now because I think what you're going to need to resolve this question is less bombastic uh, statements from the part of the United States and action. What is action? We really need to enforce these sanctions, which have not been done in the past. Particularly, we ought to get into oil because if we cut off his oil supplies, he's going to be in deep trouble. Uh, so we've had a lot of talk over the last 20 years, starting with the Clinton administration, Bush, Obama, and all they've done is talked and they've allowed Kim Jong-il first and then Kim Jong-un there now to build missiles that could strike, if not Guam, uh, somewhere pretty close and probably the west coast of the United States. And they're getting the technology to uh, miniaturize an atomic warhead. You know most of the world players in this uh, current go-round of tensions. What do you see as some of the possible uh, ways through this? Well, first of all, you've got to understand that Kim Jong-un says that uh, he basically is not his father's son. He's his grandfather's son. Uh, and his grandfather, Kim Il-sung, uh, was the person who started the Korean War because he wanted to unify Korea under communist rule. And that, many people think, is the ultimate objective of his grandson. And what he wants as a starter is U.S. troops to leave. He wants South Korea to disarm, and then that opens the way for him. We have to be very careful that we don't do uh, what uh, we have been doing, which is making a lot of tough statements that we don't live up to with North Korea, threatening them, because the Koreans uh, basically are tough people, and it, you should be speaking softly and carrying a big stick. In other words, what we need to be doing is to make sure that we put these sanctions on and we live up to them. And if the Chinese don't want to follow us and companies in China deal with him on petroleum, coal, and other things, we should put secondary sanctions on the Chinese companies to show the Chinese that we're serious. Because as I said, uh, the president of China, uh, Xi Jinping, wants no problems until his party Congress in a few months. Uh, so I think we have to really show that we can live up to what we're saying. Uh, and if we don't do that, uh, Kim Jong-un is not going to take us seriously. At the same time, the president of, of uh, South Korea, who, as I mentioned, I know, uh, President Moon, has got to tell the North that he's serious about installing the THAAD missiles, if necessary, more batteries than we have, and that he is not going to you know, back down uh, on this. And then we have to be steady on it. Now, I've read three statements that have come out from the administration in the last 48 hours. One by the, two by the president, actually. One by our Secretary of State Tillerson and one by the Secretary of Defense, Mattis. And the only one that makes any sense to me 
that's not an idle threat or that we, we, don't worry, there's no problem, which is what Tillerson said. The president made all of these threats and stuff. Mattis basically, I think, was the sanest, uh, best statement, which is saying, uh, be careful what you do because remember who you're up against uh, and just left it at that. Uh, and uh, that is the attitude we should have. And we should make sure that uh, we're serious about anything we say we're going to do. If we make it tough enough for uh, Kim Jong-un in the sense of butter, because remember, we're talking about guns and butter here. And so far, uh, he has not had a problem with the sanctions on his economy. So when we talk about putting sanctions on, they're not implemented. So unless he takes us seriously, uh, I think we're going to see more of the same. And I wouldn't be surprised if he does try and send some missile just to demonstrate us in the waters around Guam, unless he really thinks we're serious. So I think this is a major problem. We have to coordinate with our allies, with Japan, South Korea, and our major allies with NATO. Uh, and then we have to sit with the Chinese and tell the Chinese, look, if you don't support us on these sanctions and you don't support us because they're, they're the biggest single supporter that, uh, that the North Koreans have, uh, on him backing down, then we're going to put secondary sanctions on you. And let me tell you, the president of China wants no problems before this party Congress. So I think we would find that if, uh, that if the Chinese think we're serious, uh, they will try and help us more than now. They basically look at us as a paper tiger. We allowed the South China Sea to go to them. Remember all the threats under the Obama administration? We're not going to allow the South China Sea to be dominated by China. We allowed them to, to, uh, to build, build all these artificial islands. And now it's basically a done deal. And so if we are not firm in what we say, then we shouldn't say it. And that's the only way to deal with people like Kim Jong-un and others of his ilk. As far as uh, President of China Xi Jinping, uh, and you are a, a veteran banker, if you were going to meet with uh, the president of China and say, look, you seem to brook no opposition when it comes for what goes on in China. Why do you seem to uh, allow this to happen in North Korea? What value does it have for you when your focus is on your financial system and on your economy? Very good question, Pim. And I think the reason is that you have to go back to the, uh, to the Korean War. Uh, when MacArthur initially said he was going to, you know, uh, reconquer South Korea. Right, cross the 38th parallel. Yeah, when he, when he decided not only to cross the 38th parallel, MacArthur, but to go right up to the Yalu, then the Chinese said they couldn't brook, you know, American influence, uh, you know, on the Yalu. So he came in massively with millions of troops. Uh, and there, that became the most dangerous part of the Korean War. So they do not want to see American influence on the yellow. That's number one. Number two, they're concerned that you could have massive, uh, you know, illegal immigration with immigrate, you know, with uh, North Koreans fleeing. Right. They have over 20, their uh, population, I think, about 25 million in North Korea, yeah, and about 50 million, 51 million in South Korea. Exactly. And these people in North Korea would all go over there. At the same time, though, they do not want a disturbance because of this party Congress. So I think we've got to let the Chinese know that we're very serious uh, on these sanctions. And they have the ability, uh, although they say they don't, because it suits them to say they don't, uh, they have the ability to put a stop uh, to this if they want to, because they can cut off all the oil supplies. They can stop buying things from North Korea. And then you won't have the butter end of the guns and butter. And I think that... Uh, 
if our president is deliberate in what he says and follows up, then I think the Chinese uh, will be more willing to help us stop this guy. Thank you very much. Bill Rhodes, he is the author of Banker to the World, Leadership Lessons from the Front Lines of Global Finance, and the President and Chief Executive of William R. Rhodes Global Advisors. Well, let's say you're uh, attempting to purchase uh, a new home and you need to have a roof inspection, such as uh, one that my colleague Greg Jarrett is planning for Friday. Imagine if instead of having an inspector come out, you actually just saw and met a drone that would do all the work and send the data back and take care of everything for less money and in less time. How would that happen? Well, you probably would call uh, George Matthew. He is the chief executive and the chairman of Kespri. They are based in Menlo Park, California, and Kespri is an industrial drone maker. George, thank you very much for being with us. Hey, Pam. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. All right. I just want to set up the whole thing with the topic saying that Goldman Sachs forecasts that the market for drones is going to reach about $100 billion by 2020. Uh, where would you find Kespri in that big market? Yeah, when we look at that market, the drone space is continuing to evolve across multiple vectors. I think that Goldman Sachs report refers to a few areas, the commercial market, the consumer market, and, of course, the military market. In that context, we're very focused at Kespri in the commercial market, specifically on these heavier industrial use cases, like being able to fly over a roof and get dimensional measurement, as well as understanding of what the extent of hail damage might be on a roof. We do work in the mining aggregate space where we enable the drone to fly overhead to get the measurement of what a stockpile looks like and how much material you might have. We work in the construction arena where we get full topological analysis of how much material that you have to move on an earthworks project before a construction effort proceeds. So it's these industrial use cases inside of the commercial aspect of the market, Tim, that we're really focused on at Casper. George, you mentioned this idea of, for example, if there is a hailstorm and there is damage to your home and a claims adjuster has to come out. Tell us about a program that you have now with Farmers Insurance, because we're not going to get necessarily a claims adjuster. We're going to get a fleet of drones. Well, when you think about it, those claims adjusters are still going to be coming out to do the assessment of the extent of damage on a home. And when you look at even the relationship with farmers, the adjuster is still coming to the home. But when you think about what that adjuster is doing, the effort for them to manually climb that roof, to be able to take a measurement of how much material you have on the roof, the extent of the damage, that's a very laborious and dangerous process. It's actually the third uh, most significant occupationally hazardous job in the country, uh, roofers or anyone who has to climb on a roof to do that kind of work. With the assistance of the Kespri drone, that same claims adjuster can come on site and be five to six times more productive and way more safer because they can actually cover that roof by the drone flying overhead, not only taking a visual image, but creating a full topological model, as well as being able to automate the hail detection of what's occurred on as far as damage directly on that roof. And so the workload of that individual becomes way more faster and able to accomplish more than a single day, whereas they'd go from covering two to three roofs per day for as much as 10 to 15. And when there's a heavy hail-stricken region, it's about speed and customer experience. 
And in that regard, Caspery is really assisting that claims adjuster to just do their work in a more expeditious fashion. I just want to focus also on another industry group that you have uh, a lot of experience with. This is the mining industry. If you wanted to start a mine or open a mine or do a mine safety check, uh, you've got examples that uh, this would take hours, if not days, and it would take quite a number of people. Now it's just like one person in a half hour. Well, this is where we started in this business. When we looked at these opportunities for industrial work, it was always about the drone very reliably and consistently collecting data. And we think of that as effectively a full aerial intelligence platform. But the drone's not just working to collect that data, then we're providing an entire cloud infrastructure and a set of applications to support these industrial use cases. So we exactly right started in the mining aggregate space, where literally now the drone flies overhead of open mines and looks at what the topology of that landscape is, measures the amount of material that might be stockpiled, and gives you a full volumetric assessment of the material that you have on that specific mine location or that aggregate stockpile. And in it, that regard, in that regard, I was just going to mention that the accuracy of what we're now delivering them is actually now within 1% of forecast variance because you're able to get a highly accurate view, basically taking the imagery and converting that into a synthesized three-dimensional model. I, I was just going to add that it's also in the construction industry. I mean, it, it would make sense that, you know, if you're trying to figure out how much earth you're going to have to move or do a civil survey or something like that, that the drone, the information and the, and the ability to analyze the info, that would be uh, useful in that industry as well, right? That's exactly right. And when you think about the relationship with Kespri and John Deere, a few months ago we announced at ConExpo the exclusive relationship with John Deere's forestry and construction division. It was exactly for this purpose that we can actually drive the John Deere material and, and excuse me, the John Deere equipment material into a construction work site. And supporting that equipment could be exactly this drone that and our case is provided by Caspery that would actually get the topological analysis, the accuracy of the survey assessment in place so that you know where to move the earth, you know what the leveling and grading on that site looks like. And of course, when you think about these earthworks projects, getting that right is probably some of the most important aspect of a construction project, because if you don't get it right, that's when buildings lean and kind of you know fall into the ground and sink where you have all kinds of liability issues subsequent to a construction project coming on online. All right. Now, I imagine there's no one size fits all to this, but what about cost? What does something like this cost for a project? And uh, is there a subscription or a license for the analytics that come with it? Yeah, it, this is exactly how we think about it, Tim. The, the solution that we're providing is not just the drone itself, but the analytics software, the decision-making capabilities, the flight insurance that's surrounding the drone, all being packaged up. So the packaging is literally in the tens of thousands of dollars per unit. And so we make a very natural experience for our customers to land with initial unit of a Caspery drone and then very quickly expands. We have customers now that are literally in the country and the rest of North America have 20, 30 units of Caspery drones that are very actively working in these industrial work sites. George, uh, last point to you is, uh, you know, I know this is the painful part, but if you were advising people whose jobs were under threat and telling them, look, you better learn about this new drone technology because what you're doing is going to be automated in the next five years, do you have any estimates as to who or how many? 
when you think about this opportunity, at least at Caspri, we don't wake up and think about this as a situation where that work is replaced. In fact, in most of the cases where we have worked in the mining aggregate space, when we've worked in the insurance sector, when we worked in the construction sector, you notice that I mentioned the productivity of that right. individual that's actually working. So this is an opportunity that I had to go to the White House a few months back and really spend time with the president and the rest of the administration, right. really helping understand what the extent of that labor potential is and what we can actually develop. We got to run, George. I'm sorry, but George Matthew, he is the chief executive and the chairman of Kespri. They're based in Menlo Park, California. Look up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's a drone. This is Bloomberg. Well, we all know about Airbnb and what it's done for the hospitality industry and how it has disrupted the hotel business. Here to help us understand how a similar approach might be working on the yachting and boat industry is Jackie Baumgarten, the chief executive and co-founder of Boat Setter. Jackie, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Tell us first about what is Boat Setter and how did you come to found this? Certainly. So BoatSetter is the leading online boat rental community. So you can think of us as an Airbnb for boats. What BoatSetter is, is an online platform where we present privately owned vessels with U.S. Coast Guard licensed captains and incredible on-the-water experiences. What we're doing is connecting people in the boating industry in a way that's never been done before. What we have is thousands of boats to choose from across key markets in the United States, the Caribbean, and the Med. So whether you're looking to go cruising on a power yacht, fishing with your buddies, sailing on a Hinkley, or or celebrating a special day with friends and family, we have incredible and amazing boats and captains to choose from. Jackie, uh, sorry, (laughs) beg your pardon, go ahead. You had asked me as well how how I started Right, how did you, yeah, that's what I wanted to know. How'd you get into this? Certainly. So so it's a very personal story, actually. Um, Some of my happiest memories from childhood were times spent out on the water with my father and my three brothers on the lakes of Michigan and Chicago. And I wanted to be able to offer that opportunity to anyone. And in 2012, my two brothers, who are boat owners, called me about two weeks apart from one another, complaining that they were going to have to sell their boats because they hadn't used them once in an entire year. And, you know, their, their challenge is not an exception. The average boat owner only uses their boat 14 days a year. So I suggested, why don't you rent out your boats instead of selling them? And their reaction was, I can't. My insurance doesn't allow it. And they were correct. At the time, recreational boat insurance policies did not allow for rentals or charters. So I spent eight months hitting the global insurance markets and worked with leading maritime underwriters to establish the first-of-its-kind peer-to-peer marine insurance policy. And that's what launched the peer-to-peer boating industry back in 2014. How did that agreement and relationship with the insurance companies change? Did it add costs, take away costs? What happened as a result of that? Well, it was fundamentally a new policy and approach. The policy itself becomes primary and exclusive only during the rental on BoatSetter's platform. And it protects the boat, the boat owner, the renter, and captain and crew. So it's the most comprehensive uh, policy in peer-to-peer in the industry. And what that did was it fundamentally changed the relationship in allowing private owners to be able to allow their boats for rent on a marketplace like ours. 
And the way it works is when the renter rents, there's a premium associated for each rental to ensure and protect everyone involved that the renter pays. And that varies depending on the value, the age, and the quality of the vessel. Speak a little bit about the state-by-state oversight of the boating industry, because I know in Florida, for example, there is an effort in the Florida Senate, I believe, to get a new law uh, passed that allows people to get a discount on their registration for uh, additional safety measures. So, you know, in the U.S., everything is governed by, by maritime law. So it's not technically state by state. And unlike vehicles, there isn't a general license that one can have. You can get a U.S. Coast Guard license, but it's not required to go boating. So there are a lot of um, initiatives underway through various associations. Uh, Boat U.S., for example, has an on-water training course. Various states are trying to provide state safety um, boating safety courses and encouraging and in some cases requiring, depending on your age, that someone complete a boater safety course prior to getting out on the water. Tell us about some of the boats. Let's maybe start with uh, the more affordable and tell us about some of the deals and then give us the luxury version. You've got it. Well, the beauty is with thousands of boats on the site, we can offer pretty much anything to anyone depending on what they're looking for. Anything from going, um, you know, touring the intercoastal and taking out a center console for 250 to 300 for half a day up to beautiful luxury 130-foot yachts for 5000 a day. Now, you can customize the duration that you want to go out on a boat. So if you want to take it out for half a day or a month, that can be accommodated. And, you know, for those of you in New York who are interested, you could take out a 97-foot beautiful power yacht for a day. Or if you want to sail, we have, you know, 35-foot Hinkley's that you can take out. There's a wide variety of inventory, boat size, boat type, and the, pu- the plus side to our platform is that we also have the largest database of U.S. Coast Guard licensed captains, and they can be assigned to any boat. So you don't even have to be an experienced boater to enjoy Boat Setter. Well, thank you very much, uh, Jackie Baumgarten. Uh, and I notice uh, for about $1,200 for a half day, you can uh, take out a nice uh, Hinkley uh, 35 on the, uh, on the Hudson River. Thank you very much for being with us. Very interesting. Yes, well, we're going to talk about Blue Apron, a recent initial public offering. And here to help us is Alex Barinka, our initial public offering reporter for Bloomberg. Alex, uh, so you get to cover the IPO and then you get to cover the earnings call of, let's say, Blue Apron. We'll get to Snap in a second. What did we learn from Blue Apron other than the fact that people seem to be on a diet? <laughs> people are not eating as much Blue Apron is what it seems. But the main thing that I'm looking at here, it's something that did come up uh, when this company went public a couple of months ago is is looking at uh, customers and looking at how much customers are spending, revenue per customer. And, and customers did uh, decline quarter over quarter 9% not great. And average revenue per customer was 251 bucks in the second quarter, and it was $264 in the second quarter of 2016. So that's gone down 
too. So not great things, but in, to put it in context of Blue Apron, this company went public uh, as losing a lot of money, uh, spending a lot of money on marketing. And uh, right now, it's not showing that path to profitability. Um, and that's something that was concerning when this company listed and will continue to be concerning. And marketing spending, too, frankly, uh, came down, which could be perceived as a good sign. But it, when you when it coincides with that decline in customers as well, there's this fear then if they uh, if this trend of them having to basically buy customers uh, doesn't work, if there's no, um, you know, if, if they if they rein in that spending and customers acquisition doesn't go up, that's another profitability question. They also mentioned, I believe, on the call talking about their Linden, New Jersey facility and also a facility in California and their ongoing challenges. What that, happened? That's right. And, and so Blue Apron's business model, remember, they send out these meal kits to customers. Um, you you cook and chop and kind of cook the food yourself, but they pre-portion everything in these boxes. And these boxes are made at what they call these fulfillment centers. This Linden, New Jersey location, um, they did talk about that uh, location does look like it's going to be a little bit delayed, which is not helpful for the second quarter. Uh, but it, it does also uh, drag down on margins is what it looked like, uh, the chief executive officer said. And um, this delayed New Jersey ramp up, um, their cost of goods sold also increased 28% year over year. And uh, they attributed that as well to uh, kind of getting settled in this New Jersey location. So these fulfillment centers are very important for Blue Apron. It is the hub that all of the the food comes into that they prepackage. So any kind of you know delay or trouble or increase in kind of the cost of running one of these locations uh, could be an issue. They did say that down the road, this New Jersey fulfillment center is larger. It will help in terms of facilitating kind of their operations. But for now, it's not a great sign. And if you look at the shares, they are down uh, about uh, 15% right now, bringing the company uh, down since its listing in June, 47%. Well, this just might fl- flush out anybody who was a bull on the uh, on the IPO, but you know that the future remains to be seen. But I think it, just to play devil's advocate for sure. a second, I got it. It's impressive that they are at a billion dollar run rate already. They are at a billion dollar run rate, and which annually, is, right? I mean, exactly. so this is. I, I mean, you got to hand it to. Them. I mean, in an industry which you know, a couple of years ago, this did not really exist, other than you know, in the memory of people who ate Swanson's TV dinners. Um, this is kind of impressive. It is, and that's that's what the kind of buy-in to the IPO was all about. This company is relatively young. Their revenue increased to almost a billion dollars, basically a billion-dollar run rate in just a few years. They were the first mover in this meal kit space. But just since literally three days before this company uh launched its roadshow for this IPO, you have Amazon buying Whole Foods. Now you have Amazon uh, looking to patent its own meal kit. So the competitive dynamics have changed quite a bit just in the last two months. So yes, great uh, kind of onboarding of initial customers, great initial kind of trajectory for revenue. But now they have to really get to scale, figure out a way to make money and block and tackle with a gorilla like Amazon. Well, I was just going to also mention just to sort of uh, offer a coda to uh, Blue Apron right now. The IPO price was $10 right. a share, right? And we're trading right now at $5.31. So right. if you thought it was great at 10 
Maybe you think it's even greater at uh, about five and a half bucks a share. Right, right. potentially. Yeah. Uh, we will keep an eye yeah. on those analyst ratings as well. Uh, there aren't that many on this stock, uh, but they uh, right now a lot of a lot more buys than you have uh, holds and sells, and some of that might be due to that share price. All right, now uh, let's turn to something that disappears after you created it. Uh, <laughs> Snap uh, shares a Snap down today. They were trading at about thirteen and a half bucks a share. What's up with Snap? We're going to get their results uh, later on. That's right. We will get their results later on. This is the second earnings report since the IPO. You'll remember on that first earnings report, Snap disappointed on uh, user growth. They disappointed on revenue. And so these are those are kind of the two metrics that I expect people will be paying a lot of attention to. Last earnings, uh, their fiscal first quarter earnings that they reported, uh, the stock fell about 21% that day. Folks were not happy. It's recovered a little bit since then. Uh, but, you know, people will be looking at those two numbers and also they will be looking for more clarity on how they continue to want to fight against their adversary in this fight, which is Facebook and Facebook's Instagram property, um, which has basically copied Snap's disappearing photo features, their story features every step of the way. So this company is very secretive. Management doesn't like to give much when it comes to the product roadmap or how they prove to advertisers that advertisers are uh, getting the eyeballs and making money off the ads they're putting on their app. But that's what uh, investors will be looking for from Chief Executive Officer Evan Spiegel and potentially Chief Strategy officer Imran Khan as well. A pleasure always. And I'm uh, if Evan Spiegel's listening or someone knows him, I think that he ought to talk to you. That way he <laughs> won't be so reclusive. Thanks very much for joining us. Alex Barinka, our IPO reporter for Bloomberg News. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.